in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32. Paul lays out for us in vivid detail, enough detail to make a sailor blush, the consequences of suppressing the truth of God. And in a word, mankind has become, Paul says, of depraved mind. That's the term he uses to describe them in verse 28 of chapter 1. He says that their minds have become depraved. To be depraved is to be useless and unhelpful. Their minds, Paul says, have become useless in the sense that they are not able to generate fulfilling thoughts that produce peace within. Their minds have become useless. They are unfulfilled, lurching from one pleasure to the next in search of some gratification that always seems to elude them, captured by alluring temptations too powerful for them to overcome. Their minds have become depraved. And once they find their way out of one trend, once they find their way out of one fad, their minds lead them headlong into the next empty, sinful endeavor. Einstein said this, that you cannot solve a problem with the same mind that created it. And that is the great dilemma of all of humanity. We have resisted God. And now that God has removed himself from our lives, we find ourselves without fulfillment and without meaning. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how many distractions we create for ourselves, our distractions cannot shake the sense of lack and impoverishment, impoverishment of spirit that haunts our dry souls. Our minds have become depraved. And as you read Romans chapter 1 verses 26 through 32, you get a glimpse, you get a taste of what that looks like. And so now in chapter 2, Paul turns the corner. And he says, therefore, and usually when you read the word therefore, it's looking back to the past. It means in light of what has already been said, therefore. But the way Paul uses therefore right now is he is look, not looking backwards, but he's looking forward. Paul is saying, therefore, the fo for the following reasons, or this is why, that's what he's saying. This is why you have no excuse. You have no justification. You have no way out. You have no reasonable explanation that you can give to God, you foolish person. Oh, but who is he talking to? Who is Paul talking to when he says that? Paul says he is talking to every one of you who passes judgment. That's a surprise. 
You would think that Paul would be talking to somebody else after he gives that long list of all of these depraved sins. But Paul says, no, I'm going to turn the corner now. You have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. Hmm. To pass judgment comes from the Greek word krinon, which means to make a legal decision, to make a condemnation of another person. Many people. Even some believers think this word means that we're not supposed to have an opinion about other people's actions. Many people, even some believers, think that this means we're not supposed to voice our position on matters of sin, on matters of righteousness, and if we do have opinions, we should keep quiet, keep it to ourselves. But that's not what Paul is saying here. And when you look at examples from Scripture, what we find is that to judge has at least two components. To judge is first of all to have an opinion about a person and then to act on that opinion. To have a negative opinion about a person and then to act on that negative opinion. A good example can be found in John chapter 8 verse 4 where the men brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They have an opinion about this woman and they're prepared to act on that opinion, to punish her for her indiscretion. You see, a judge doesn't just find the person guilty, a judge also passes condemnation, punishment, sentence. Paul says, don't be a judge. To judge someone always starts with a low opinion of that person, but it doesn't end there. If I say to a sinner that you are wrong, if I say to a sinner that that lifestyle that you're living is wrong, that is not judging anyone. But if I say to you that you are wrong and therefore I want nothing to do with you, then I have judged you. I have taken it upon myself to parcel out retribution for my perceived view of your lifestyle. Now I'm judging you. Opinions don't harm people. But ostracism, Verbal abuse and physical abuse, these things do actual harm to people. And there is never an excuse to harm another individual, Paul says. Never a good reason to treat people unfairly, no matter how sinful they may be. But on the other hand, every person should be able to identify sin. Every person should be able to recognize sin and to call it what it is. This is the fine line. Believers must learn to walk if we're not going to be judgmental. Because judging sin is not a problem. How do I know that? Well, if judging sin was a problem, then Paul himself just sinned. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26, all the way through 32, because he calls out a number of sins. Calling out sin is not the problem. How you view the individual 
is the sin. If you have a low opinion of a person, that is sin because of their actions, because of their lifestyle. If you have a low degrading opinion of another man, of another woman, then you're judging them. Paul the apostle has a very low view of sin, as should we all. But to judge the sinner is beyond our authority. And to conflate the sinner with her actions is inexcusable, Paul says. Because she is more than what she has done, whether she realizes it or not. By her sin, she has debased her own self. But she is not to be debased in my eyes. No matter where he has gone, no matter what he has done, no matter what habits he has fallen into, he remains the image of Almighty God. And as such, I am not to harbor a low view of any person. There is no excuse for it, Paul says. For in that matter in which you judge someone else, Paul says, you condemn your own self. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. The way you evaluate another person is the same way you will be evaluated by God. But why? Well, Paul surfaces the truth that the self-righteous person cannot bear to entertain. He says that you who judge practice the same thing. He turned the corner. You who are doing the judging, you practice the same thing. No, 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 he has an inappropriate sexual desire. Paul says, well, so do you. She is filled with envy, murder, strife, and deceit. Paul says, yeah, so are you. He is arrogant, boastful, and disobedient, yes, and so are you. You who judge practice the same things. So if you deem a person unworthy because of their sinful actions and attitudes, then you betray the fact that you are just as unworthy of God's love because every dark obsession you found in them also resides in yourself. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that does good. And if you decide that another person has no value because they cannot do good, then you should look at your own life and pronounce that same determination upon yourself because God intends to. Hmm. Paul goes on to say in verse 2 that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. In other words, Paul is exhorting this to me. Because you sin, you have become nothing to me. God doesn't say that, no. What God says to the sinner is, your sin is worthless. 
And because you have not separated yourself from sin through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, this is your punishment. You have no excuse. I explained to us in another sermon, I forget which sermon it was, that Jesus Christ did not come into the world to destroy people. That is not God's goal. That is not God's aim. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to destroy people. Jesus came into the world to destroy the sin that has infected and dominated mankind. Sin is the target. Unfortunately, sin has found a resting place in the souls and hearts of men. And men and women have so identified with their sin that it becomes impossible to judge sin without judging the person. And it is only through their faith in the righteous, finished work of Jesus Christ that any of us can be exonerated. That any of us can be justified. So Paul asked the question in verse three. Do you suppose this, you foolish person, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and yet does them as well, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that just because you were able to suppress your sinfulness better than that person, that that makes you safe? Did you think that because of your willpower to abstain from certain sins that you will evade God's righteous judgment? That you will go into heaven undetected? Listen, you cannot do enough in your own strength. You cannot walk uprightly enough. You cannot erase those years of sinful practices from the books. You are just as guilty as the lowest sinner. Maybe you haven't given in to the same temptation. But to give in to one temptation is to give in to all temptation. Or like James says it in James chapter 2 and verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point of the law, he becomes guilty of all. Break that down then. If you have lived your life and only stumbled one single solitary time, then you are guilty of breaking the whole law of God. You may have cleaned up your act by now. It doesn't matter. That one sin still has to be accounted for. That one sin still has to be punished, just like that sinner that you're judging. And because in breaking the one you have broken all of God's law, your punishment is the exact same as the most depraved of sinners. You have no justification. You have no excuse for being so dismissive toward those who have subjected themselves to full-blown sin. You have no reason to do so. You have no standing before God to judge any person because you are just like them. This is what's very interesting and, and kind of cool about the way Paul does it. In chapter 1, Paul is describing these sins so vividly and you're repulsed by them. Ooh, people do that and people do this kind of thing and oh, that's sick and they do that only to get here and Paul tells you, no, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't talking about them. I was talking about you. Whoa, 
Yeah, I was talking about you. I was talking about all of mankind. Not just that one person you were thinking about because you were judging somebody. Yeah, I know, I know, but I caught you. All of that vivid description I just gave was about you. Now, how do you feel about that? That's what he's saying. You have no justification. You have no excuse to be dismissive toward any human soul. You're just like them. All sin, even your one sin, qualifies as full-blown sin in the sight of God. And so then how is it, Paul is asking, how is it that one lowly sinner can suppose himself to have the right or the power to judge another lowly sinner? You're both lowly sinners. Because the person who judges has set up his own opinion and his own determination above God. That's the problem. As Paul says in verse 4, the person who judges other people thinks lightly of the riches, of the abundance of God's kindness. The judgmental person thinks God is too kind to sinners. And God is kind. The word kindness can be interpreted to mean goodness, the goodness of God, like we sang about today. God is good to sinners. Yes, he is. God is good to sinners. And the judgmental person can't stand that fact. Why would you be good to them? They're repulsive. They're sick. They're riddled through with sin. But God is good to sinners. The person who judges refuses to be good to sinners. He feels their actions to be so debased that they are undeserving of his honor and his respect. But God shows them kindness. God is gentle with them. And even though every sinner is deserving of quick and immediate retribution, every sinner is deserving of quick and immediate retribution, God shows great restraint. Paul says that God restrains himself and the judgmental person hates the restraint of God. You know, you know that Adam and Eve were worthy of immediate termination in the Garden of Eden the moment that they sinned. God had the right at that very moment to terminate them. God had the right to administer judgment upon them at that very moment, but he exercised restraint. And that same restraint that God initiated from the beginning remains the only reason that you and I are not consumed right now because God is exercising restraint. To be restrained is to be slow in demanding justice. God is slow in demanding quick justice. God is in no rush to condemn anyone. But the judgmental person wants to see justice done to the sinner right here and right now. The judgmental person wants to see every sinner that he hates to be terminated, to be abolished right now. 
So he castigates them and he harasses them. He talks down to sinners and he refuses to even be in their midst. He denies them from the benefit of his company. He's taken it upon himself to make their lives a living hell. He chases them down. He is impatient with them. But Paul the Apostle said that God is patient with the depraved sinner. And the judgmental person thinks lightly of the patience of God. He thinks that God is making a mistake. These depraved sinners need to be punished and they need to be punished right now and I'm going to take it upon myself to ostracize them, to abuse them, to talk down to them because God is being too kind, God is exercising too much restraint, God is being too good. But the judgmental person doesn't realize that at that very moment that he's saying it, God is exercising restraint against him. God is being kind to him. <laughs> God is kind. God is patient. God exercises restraint. He is slow to bring justice upon the sinner. And by his restraint, by God's goodness, by his patience, God is hoping to save a soul. Paul says at the end of verse 4 that the purpose of the kindness of God is to lead us all to repentance. That's the only purpose. To lead us all to repentance. And this is why God remains slow to mete out his final judgment upon sinners because he hopes that through the abundance of his kindness, humanity might come to realize that God truly only wants what is best for us all. And that they'll become grateful. God seeks to prove to mankind that even though we have rejected him, even though we have preferred pleasure over righteousness, even though we have rebelled against him, even though we've turned our backs away from him, he still loves us. He still desires only that we will come to realize that the one we're running away from is the only one who can satisfy our longing hearts. That's what God is waiting for. That's why God is kind to humanity. That is why God provides rain upon the just and the unjust alike. That is why God gives our meat in due season. It's called the common grace of God, the grace that God has for all of humanity, even when we don't deserve it. He shows us his loving kindness so that we can know that we always have a place in his heart no matter how sinful we might have become. We always have a place in God's heart. No matter how far we may have roamed away, no matter how deeply we may have fallen into sin, we still have worth and value in the eyes of God. And as far as God is concerned, we are not the sin that we do. But we are just as good in the sight of God as the day that he made us. 
This is what Jesus was trying to communicate when he healed people. He would walk by and see a blind man and say, that is not who you are. That is not God's vision for you. You're better than that. Be healed. It's the same thing God says with sin. You're depraved of mind. You're sinning in all kinds of ways. But listen, that's not who you are, and I can see beyond your mask. I know that's not what I made. You're making a mistake, and I'm going to be patient with you, and I'm going to exercise restraint with you, and I'm going to stay good to you with the hope that one day you'll realize that in the depths of your depraved heart, you're crying out for the same thing that all men are crying out for, freedom, hope. That hope and freedom that you desire is in Jesus Christ the Lord. That's what God is trying to do. <laughs> God desires that all men would be saved, that no one would be banished to eternal damnation. That's his desire. He says in the word of God, with loving kindness have I drawn you. You're sinning against me, but the sun still shines on you. You're not paying me any attention, but I still supply your every need according to my riches in glory. Hopefully one day you will become grateful. Hopefully one day you will feel the warmth of my love for you and you will come to Jesus. In the meantime, while you're out there doing your thing and making your own way and making poor decisions, I'm going to stand by you, man, because I love you. <laughs> You've chosen your own way above me, yes. You've taken me for granted, yes. But I remain still calling out to you hoping to deliver you from the full consequences of your sin, all in an effort to prove to us that God truly loves us, that God has a better plan for our lives. But all this kindness makes the judgmental person angry with God. Verse 5 says that because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, God is being patient with you, person who judges other people. God is being patient with you as well. But if you continue at some point, <laughs> God's patience is going to run thin even for you. Of God's own will, his justice is being delayed. But justice delayed is not justice denied. The day of God's wrath and the revelation of the wrath of God, that day will come. And on that day, when his patience has worn thin, verse 6 says that God will repay each person according to his deeds. Hmm. Right now, we're all living under common grace. The saint and the sinner, we're all under this common grace where the sun is shining on all of us and the rain is falling upon all our heads. But the day is going to come, that day of the final revelation of the wrath of God. 
That common grace will be done away and God's patience will be moved out of the way and God will no longer restrain his wrath. And the depraved mind and the judgmental person will suffer the same consequence. But we've already concluded that every human soul is already guilty. Every one of us is already guilty. And there is no amount of moral modifications that we can make that can cause us to evade God's punishment. We're all guilty. But Paul says in verse 7 that to those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. To those who by perseverance in doing good. But if it's not possible for us to evade judgment for our past sins, even if we've got it all together, what good can we possibly do that will yield us this eternal reward? What can we possibly do that is good to make up for the sin that we've already done? This was the question they posed to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 28. They asked Jesus, what are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the good work that every man is called to do, to believe on Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to evade the wrath of God that is to come on all humankind. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to receive eternal life. Would you believe me if I told you that eternal life is what every human heart is longing for? Would you believe me if I told you that this is what the entirety of the human race is seeking all the time? To be glorified, to be honored, and to live forever in a state of eternal bliss. Yes, it's what every human soul, saved and unsaved, it is what every human soul is searching for. That's what we all desire, whether we realize it or not, whether we can articulate it or not. This is what the person doing drugs is trying to attain to. This is what the sexually immoral are hoping to find through their acts. The liar and the cheat, the thief and the robber, all of them by their actions are trying to find that holy grail that will lead them to eternal satisfaction and bliss. We were made for eternal life. We were fashioned after God to live forever. And somewhere deep beneath our years of foolishness, Every human soul is crying out to know and to be known by that which is eternal. It is what we all are searching for. And you and I, brother and sister, you who believe, we have come to Jesus Christ for the same reason, that we might be glorified and honored and inherit eternal life. But it is a life that is beyond this world. It is a life that is beyond the grasp of human experience or our own enterprise. 
What we truly seek is not in this world. What humanity is truly seeking is not in sexual experiences. It is not in the brothel. It is not in the drugs. It is not in the gambling hall. And our souls will find no rest until our souls rest in the bosom of Almighty God from whence we have come. He is the only one that can make us complete. There is no sin or no sexual gratification that can satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul. The sexually immoral and the proud person want the exact same thing that we all do. We need not judge them for their acts of defiance against the truth of God. He is only lost, she is only lost, as we all are, as we all were. And it is not ours to judge but to gently point him, to gently point her in the direction where he can find the peace and the rest that his soul so desperately craves. And if for now this person chooses not to avail themselves of this true glory that is found only in Jesus Christ, it is our role as the followers of God, it is our role to be patient with them to leave the door open for the day that she may come to herself and find her way back home. That's what God is doing. That's what we should be doing. But if she doesn't come to herself and the patience of God has worn thin, well, Paul says in verse eight that to those who are self-serving, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, God will give wrath and indignation. And this anger and this outrage of God will be eons more severe than anything human judgment could have ever meted out. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. He has shown you and he is showing us his goodness his restraint and his patience. But if you continue to reject the overtures of God, if you continue to take him as a fool, to remain disconnected from him, if you take the goodness of God to be weakness, you should be prepared to meet him in the fervency of his power, his might, and his anger. You should arm yourself to stand before God and give him your inexcusable explanation to which God will reply, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. But for now, and as long as you and I remain in this world, Paul says we should not take it upon ourselves to make any such proclamation toward our fellow man. We should be just as good, just as restrained, and just as patient as God is with those who walk outside of his will. Because the sinner ultimately does not belong to us. 
The sinner is not answerable to us for their deeds. The sinner, just like us, is answerable only to his God. Do not judge. When I say do not judge, I don't mean do not have an opinion. When I say do not judge, I do not mean do not recognize sin for what it is. What I mean is that do, by do not judge is do not conflate the sinner with his sin. Do not devalue any human soul, no matter what they do, no matter what they look like, no matter what they act like. Do not devalue any human soul. We all have worth in the eyes of God. And the person who takes it upon themselves to devalue any human soul because of their actions and their attitudes, Paul says, that person also will experience the wrath of God because by the same judgment that you judged another, God is going to judge you. Do not judge. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes we forget that we ourselves are wretches undone. And it seems like, Lord, the longer that we walk with you, unintentionally and sometimes even subconsciously, we tend to become self-righteous. We tend to imagine that we are better or different than the sinner. This is a common mistake among your people. To imagine ourselves to be different and not in solidarity with every other wretched soul. Sometimes, Lord God, we forget that it is only because of Jesus Christ that we ourselves have become acceptable. And that in truth, in reality, we are just as unacceptable as the worst sinner. Remind us of this. Bless us with the fruit of the spirit of humility. Help us to be gentle with those with whom we disagree. Help us to not imagine one sin to be any greater or any more harmful than another in your sight. And even though, Lord God, we do recognize sin in others and sometimes in ourselves, help us not to conflate the sin with the sinner. We pray, Lord God, that you will destroy sin and that you will save every sinner. It is your desire that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Help us to be kind. Help us to be good. Help us to refrain from judging harshly. Help us from speaking abusive words against our neighbor. Help us, Lord God, to recognize your grace and your mercy for us, to be grateful, and to pray that grace and that same mercy upon every soul. Give us hearts of love. Help us to love like you love. Help us to do no harm. In Jesus' name.